Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers the long war, uh, what we or what we call the long war. It's the global war on terror, and we're expanding that to include issues like Russian aggression in Ukraine and other areas. Today, we are going to do a battlefield update on the situation in Ukraine and Russians' re- recent uh, withdrawal from Kherson will definitely play a, a key uh, is a key theme to this podcast. Um, also, we're going to look on look at Russian actions on the Donbas front and Russian Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, and then we'll we'll try and take a look at what lies ahead in the next couple of months. Always difficult to do in this war. But we'll give it a go. Uh, today's guest is John Hardy. He's the deputy director of FDD's Russia program. Uh, John looks at the detail of this war, like Tom Jocelyn and I have looked at the details of the war on terror. Um, he has great insights on what is happening day to day and uh, has done a really good job of, of looking forward. Uh, John, welcome to Generation Jihad. Uh, it's great to have you back on. Hey, Bill. Great to be back. Let's get right to it. It's a, a lot has happened since you were last on the program. I believe it was in the beginning of October. Right. Yeah, it's really stunning what's happened. You had the, the offensive in Kharkiv, uh, we've had, which we discussed back then. The uh, with the Ukrainian or the Ukrainians driving the Russians out from there. Um, now they've pivoted to Kherson in the south, and they've retaken the city of Kherson after General Sergei Sorovkin. He's the commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, and he ordered the withdrawal of all Russian forces across the Dnepro River that ceded uh, the city of Kherson to the Ukrainians. Um, keep in mind, Kherson was an area or one of the four uh, regions that was annexed by Russia uh, in the, within the last two months. Um, but unlike Kar- Kharkiv, the uh, withdrawal from Kherson appeared orderly. Uh, I, th- I think this was was significant for all the the downsides of what happens to the Russians. This might be the only bright spot, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, soon. But first, John, why did the Rus- Why did Russia withdraw its forces from Kherson? What was happening there that forced the Russians to pull? I believe it was what about twenty to thirty thousand. Russian troops across the Dnepro River that were, were stationed there? That's the number we've we've gotten consistently. Um, and I think actually over the past month or so, it may have even increased a tad as they uh, brought in some mobilized troops to try to cover the withdrawal. But essentially, I think it was just a recognition that Russia's position there on the western bank of the Neva River was um, just increasingly untenable because of Ukraine's months-long um, you know, uh, uh, strategy of corrosion targeting uh, using HIMARS and you know, other long-range strike systems to target um, you know, several key bridges um, across the Dnieper River and then another river river on the West Bank. Um, so you know that combined with uh, you know targeting command and control, what have you, um, it really just left Russians and the Russians in a tough spot. And I think uh, the, the new commander essentially convinced Putin, uh, you know, it was time to withdraw. Uh, and Putin had resisted that for a while. Um, you know, for obvious political reasons. And I think he also, you know, really valued that that foothold on the western bank of the river, um, perhaps hoping for a renewed offensive, maybe in 2023, um, targeting Mikolaev and Odessa. Um, but I think, you know, his generals, uh, chief among them, the new commander, um, uh, probably convinced him, uh, you know, otherwise. I think it's safe to say that uh, targeting Mikolaev and the 
and Odessa is off the table for at least a year or two now, if not ever. I, I, I think the Russian dream of taking the entirety of the Black Sea uh, coast has to have gone down in yeah, flames. Absolutely. If you, if you look at the beginning of the war, when they you know, initially took the western bank of Pearson, it was actually a, a pretty impressive feat to have crossed that, um, to cross the river as easily as they did. And it was, it was actually a big controversy in Ukraine. You know, why were they able to do that so quickly? Um, you know, I, I don't think they'll be as successful the second time around. The Ukrainians, uh, they were, I remember reading, they were taking a real beating in that area. They're for, they weren't prepared. They were undermanned. Yeah. There might've been some, uh, some uh, issues with, uh, let's just say penetration by Russian intelligence. At least that's the implication you get from firing certain people, um, you know, after the fact. Yeah. But they did do some things right there when they, I remember they were destroying the bridges uh, into Mikhailov and uh, they, so, you know, they, they fought, uh, the Ukrainians, you know, they fought a, a pretty uh, intelligent, a, a skilled defensive war against the Russians. Uh, I would say throughout they've sacrificed what they've needed to sacrifice in order to hold on and go back on the, de- the defensive. But let's, uh, let's take a look at the, the new commander, Serovkin. Um, he, he played a key role in the decision to withdraw, or so it seems, right? How did he get Putin's ear, he and others get Putin's ear to withdraw? Sure. So I, how exactly he did it, you know, I can't exactly say, um, but it does just seem, you know, from the fact that, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, very shortly after his formal appointment um, as the overall commander, he, you know, gave an interview. The first time, uh, you know, for much of this war, Russia hasn't had an overall commander, so there's no commander to give an interview. But you know, he gave one first time a commander has done that so far, um, and he, he alluded to the fact that, that Russia might have to withdraw. So I think we we sort of saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I think the Russians have been have been laying the the groundwork for a potential withdrawal, both both in their propaganda and in you know, military actions. Um, you know, for some time now, uh, to me, it was it was sort of unclear whether they would actually cede. Um, the Western Bank without a fight. Um, uh, you know, I, I think Putin was was probably um, uh, reluctant to do so, but you know, evidently the, the the generals convinced him. You know, if if you don't, you risk leaving. Uh, you know, like the the bulk of what's left of the professional Russian military, which had been on the Western Bank, um, you risk having them encircled and, and cut off. So I think they did the military prudent thing. Um, you know, perhaps a little bit belatedly, but but ultimately Putin has proven that. When push comes to shove, whether it's you know, Kharkiv or Kiev or now you know, Kherson, he will eventually withdraw if, if forced to confront reality. It's actually a bit um, a bit ironic that you know leaving out the the route in Kharkiv, uh, and you know that disorderly uh, retreat there, um, the retreats from from around Kiev and then now Kherson have been some of the better um, organized. At least you know it seems like have been some of the better organized um, Russian operations of this entire war. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will. Yeah. Good at retreating. Yeah. Let's, let's get into that a little bit more. The, uh, what does the orderly withdrawal from Kherson tell us about the Russian military going forward? Are, are the generals and political lead, leaders, are they learning from their past mistakes? I mean, I realize, you know, this is learning from losing, but there, there is value in that, uh, that, that they start making the right decisions, you know, going forward, that always is a cause, probably should be a cause for concern from Ukraine if they're starting to think rationally about their military situation. Yeah. So I, 
I'd say the generals from the very beginning probably weren't the main problem. They're definitely, this war has exposed a lot of problems within Russia's military. So I don't want to, you know, just um, say they're blameless for, you know, what's been a debacle of a war. But, you know, at least if if you want to believe public reporting based on U.S. intelligence, um, you know, the generals were warning Putin from from the very beginning, you know, know, this this military plan that you you and the FSB seem to have drawn up, you know, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're going to need a lot more troops. You know, it's but you know the plan, of course, was based on Putin and the FSB's sort of flawed um, assumptions about Ukraine and its ability and will to resist, and perhaps you know a, a bit of wishful thinking about the, the Russian military. And and so you know from the very beginning, I don't think the generals were the chief problem. And once Putin, I think, stepped back a little bit after the um, the initial Kiev um, campaign and sort of let the generals run the show in the Donbas. Russia's military had taken a beating, so it wasn't really pretty, but it did, you know, have a little bit more military coherence. Um, but, in, you know, now that, that uh, the new commander's taken over, you have some unity of command. Uh, so that's probably helped things a bit as well. Tell us about the, you know, conducting a, a retrograde or a retreat, whatever you wanted to call it. What does that, this retreat itself, what does it tell us about Russian capabilities? Like you said, in, in Kharkiv, there, it was a, it was a, an absolute shit show, yeah. uh, dare I say. But this this retreat was definitely, I would describe it as orderly. Not a lot of equipment left behind. They got their people out. We're not seeing a, you know, a lot of Russian captive Russian soldiers. I don't recall seeing any. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about the capabilities there, the Russian military um, with this withdrawal. Sure. So so unlike in, in Kharkiv, I think you know the Russians were had, had prepared for this uh, retreat for a while. So you know they had set up uh, pre-prepared uh, defensive lines to fall back to. You know they had they had uh, actually in this sector of of the war of the of the um, battlefield they had high force density, whereas you know that, it was the opposite in Kharkiv. So um, you know for for months now it's been a pretty tough slog for Ukraine. Ukraine itself has taken taken significant casualties. Um, so you know the, the Ukrainians just weren't in a position to to rout the Russians like you know, like they were in Kharkiv. So. You know, as the Russians were were, were uh, retreating, it seems like they you know brought in some additional forces to cover, um, and then you know slowly um, withdrew back to you know pre pre prepared uh, defensive positions before ultimately retrograding across the river. Um, definitely, you know, it doesn't seem like an easy operation. You know, those type of things never are, especially when you have to cross a river like that over some degraded bridges. Um, but you know, they seem to have pulled it off. Uh, like you're saying, I haven't seen. A whole lot of um, open source evidence of of a ton of vehicles left behind. There have been some. I think in, in most cases they've you know, destroyed things they couldn't uh, fix and take back. So the losses appear to be minimal. If if that had not been the case and we had another Kharkiv, um, I mean, it, it, a lot of Russian troops and some of their best ones they have left um, would have probably lost their combat capability. So that that truly would have been a disaster. Yeah, absolutely would have been a dis- disaster. So. What is the political impact of the withdrawal from Kherson on Putin? Obviously, this is a, a yet another in, in the latest line of defeats. But what is what do we think? Where does Putin go from here? I think to me, he's th- he's probably thinking, OK, I, I'm mobilizing. You know, I'm putting, uh, you know, my full effort into this war. I, I, I don't think he'll be happy with just, you know, where he is now, especially having lost a considerable amount of territory. That you remember in, in his eyes is now Russian. So um, you know, I would imagine he wants to 
you know, renew offensive operations, uh, you know, uh, in 2023, so, you know, some sort of uh, renewed counter, uh, offensive, um, you know, where exactly that happens, I'm not sure. You know, for now, Ukraine really retains the strategic initiative. So, you know, they're able to dictate where and when those major uh, battles happen. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Putin would like to use mobilization, um, you know, to, to get back on the offensive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost insane if he thinks that he's going to go back on the offensive and retake ground at this point. He's ground down some of his best forces. Um, and really, he's on the defensive. I mean, I think if you look at this, Putin would be lucky to be able to consolidate uh, and hold what it currently holds right now. Yeah, I think, you know, that was the big the big challenge for Russia uh, before mobilization, which I think is exactly why they did it. Um, you know, Putin, he, he may not have a, a great appreciation for exactly what makes a combat capable unit or, you know, perhaps he, he still thinks in uh, you know, like kind of World War One mentality where you just get a bunch of people and mass is all that matters. And, you know, throwing uh, cannon fodder into, into the fight is 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 really enough. But. I'd say on both sides, you have um, right now, uh, you know, force generation regeneration is is a priority. You know, on, for Ukrainians, um, they really uh, they need to to you know train and equip additional forces to retain, uh, and then you continue to push the strategic initiative. Um, you know, so getting more Western equipment is, is, is a priority. We can talk about that later. Um, but you know, same same thing, obviously, for the Russians, they need to continue uh, with mobilization. And you know, try to reconstitute some of the force. Um, so I suspect that's that's the priority for Putin. What does the future look like on, on the Kherson front? I hate to ask those questions, but you know, I think we have a lot with this war is what nine months in. I think we have a lot of data to look at and be able to give some some type of intelligent prognostication here. Can the Ukrainians capitalize and move forward in, in Kherson, or do you, do we think things will stabilize there? I'd imagine that, that, you know, obviously the Russians are going to, you know, uh, try to consolidate um, their new defensive line on on the eastern bank of the Dnieper. Uh, you know, they've, they were building those lines already, but, you know, before the withdrawal, um, the Ukrainians, I think, would, would be pretty hard pressed to conduct a successful uh, river crossing operation there. Um, I think both sides will probably, uh, you know, redeploy some forces from that area to, to other fronts. Um, Zaporizhia. Uh, to me, seems like a prime one. The, uh, the Ukrainians have already been, you know, moving in some troops, at least based on reports from from Russian observers. Um, and you know, uh, both sides might try to, uh, you know, reinforce the Bakhmut area, um, maybe maybe the uh, Luhansk uh, Oblast area where Ukraine is is uh, trying to push. Um, so I, I think you know neither side is really want for uh, an, another sector that needs reinforcing. Uh, whether either because you know on the Russian side it's being threatened, or in, in Ukraine's case around Bakhmut, you know maybe that's a little threatened for them. Okay, let's take a look at the uh, the Donbas region now, where the fighting is ongoing. But that front does seem to have stabilized. Uh, would you agree with that that assessment? So I, I don't think we're going to see dramatic um, swings, um, at least not in the in the Bakhmut uh, and then uh, Vuodar area, which we can talk about. Um, the the um, area of near uh, Kramina and Svatovia. Yeah, let's start with the Kramina area. So there's basically we're going to talk about three three areas there. Let's start on that Kramina area, and then we'll move on to to Volodar and and Bakhmut. I think if, if we're going to see dramatic gains on the Ukrainian side, that's probably where it'll happen. 
Um, if you remember after the uh, the Kharkiv counteroffensive, um, basically the, the Russians tried to uh, uh, organize a new offensive along the Osko River. The Ukrainians were able to, to cross it in, in multiple places um, and then, you know, eventually take Liman. The, the Russians had to keep falling back until, you know, now they're basically um, uh, trying to, to, to hold their, their defensive line, uh, you know, between those two small towns I mentioned, both, uh, you know, not very big, but but strategically important um, or operationally important. Um, so yeah, they're trying to hold that line. The lines haven't moved a ton in the past month or so. Um, uh, since we last spoke, and, and that's really where we are now. The Ukrainians conduct uh, daily atta- attacks there, um, but haven't made a ton of ground um, in, in the past month. Uh, honestly, I'm not quite sure whether they have uh, concentrated their sufficient forces for another uh, operational level uh, counteroffensive. Um, I'd imagine the fight um, really across the battlefield uh, has taken a, a good bit out of them uh, over the past you know couple months. Um, uh, you know, in both uh, men and materiel. So it, it's possible they need to, you know, kind of regroup, refit, get some more Western equi- equipment accumulated, and, and then prepare something. Perhaps, you know, it, it's 2023, uh, although I wouldn't rule out a winner, uh, a continuation of the counteroffensive uh, over the winter. Do you think the Ukrainians could have success during a winter offensive in the in this region? It, it'll, it, they could. It'll, it'll be tougher. I, I mean, so... Um, you know, uh, uh, offensive maneuver might, uh, you know, will be tough in the mud as it currently is. Uh, and then w- once the ground freezes, uh, that won't be as much of a problem. But, you know, we'll have to deal with, uh, you know, things you might not think about, like uh, like reduction in foliage. So, you know, it may, uh, you can't use the foliage for cover. You know, that, that can make um, offensive operations difficult. Um, you know, the, the cold in general can be tough on both sides. But, you know, the Ukrainians, I think, know how to fight in the cold. Um, and for that matter, so do the Russians, although Ukraine, I think the cold probably will, um, you know, kind of exacerbate uh, Ukraine's uh, advantage in morale just because, you know, you know uh, cold is never nice. You have Ukrainians with more determination. And on the Russian side, you have probably a lot of mobilized troops who may have not gotten their cold weather gear. Um, so, you know, that could be tough for them. The Russians in the E, particularly in the Donbass region, seem to have a significant advantage in artillery has this been negated with the western artillery systems that have come in like the glmrs and the high mars things of that nature we heard a lot about that in the russian offensive in the donbass over the summer where the ukrainians were saying you know we're we're outgunned 10 to 1 and that's that seems to have dried up what what has happened to the Russian artillery advantage. Do you, do you have any indication yeah. of anything happening with that? Anecdotal evidence over the past few months has sort of gone both ways. I think it's it's depended on where exactly we were in the war. So, for example, right after the Kharkiv counteroffensive, uh, you know, I think the artillery rates probably dropped off, as you might expect, because you know, the Russians were reorganizing. They left a, probably a lot of shells behind. You know, we saw some on video evidence, probably some we didn't see. Um, but overall, I, I think the numbers that I've heard from you know, Ukrainian and U.S. sources um, about Russian and Ukrainian daily rates of artillery fire across the entire the entire battlefield have actually remained remarkably similar. Um, so, assuming you know those those numbers I'm hearing are correct, um, it, it sounds like the Russians might have done a, a better job than than I anticipated of um, of sort of adjusting to the high Mars threat. You know, dispersing depots, uh, you know, things of that nature. Okay. 
this has been one that's really bothered me. I would have thought that that artillery advantage would have helped the Russians, particularly on the defensive. But, uh, you know, I guess this all remains to be seen. And as you know, uh, you've said numerous times, you know, it depends. It goes by theater, yeah. by theater, yeah. right? And then to be clear, when I mean the numbers are the same. So you, it, Russia still does have, at least based on these numbers, again, um, a considerable advantage in daily rate of fire. But so right. I'm hearing like, you know, 15 to 20,000 shells per day versus a few thousand for the Ukrainians. What the Ukrainians have is, is a considerable advantage in precision, both because of, you know, HIMARS and um, MLRS, but also because uh, their tube artillery, I think, is, is a good bit more accurate than the average Rust, uh, Russian um, uh, counterpart. And these would be the Western supplied tube artillery, correct? Exactly. All right, let's take a look at the, the Volodar uh, front, or uh, let's what's going on there? Sure. In, in late October, uh, Russia launched a, a tactical offensive to take a town, Donetsk Oblast, called Pavlika, um, which, Rus- which Russia had took um, early in the war, but then lost uh, over the summer. Uh, the goal is likely to go there, from uh, from Pavlika to Volodar, uh, which is just to the north. Um, I think basically what the Russians are trying to do here is uh, to push the Ukrainians back from a key rail hub um, further down south. Uh, it also helped the Russians um, make some gains slightly to the northeast, um, where they're trying to push um, the Ukrainians back from Donetsk City. Um, so basically some uh, Russian naval infantry, um, uh, along with uh, perhaps some volunteer uh, forces, uh, maybe, maybe some mobilized troops, um, and probably some DNR as well, um, uh, it seemed to have entered Pavlivka, and uh, you know, taking some heavy casualties in the process. There was actually an incident where um, some of the naval infantry uh, troops released a letter, basically complaining about you know taking heavy casualties for for an offensive that in, you know in their mind didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, so it, it's sort of an information op coup for the Ukrainians, um, which they've exploited. So this is one of the areas where the Russians nominally, I would say, are on the offensive. They're definitely on the offensive. Uh, I'd say that it doesn't really seem like they have the prospects to turn this into, you know, tactical successes and into operational ones. So I don't think that you know they're going to push like tens of kilometers. Um, but you know, if the goal is is to uh, move the Ukrainians slightly back from you know the, the rail hub I mentioned, then you know that, that they they could be successful in that. I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad, and today our guest is John Hardy. He is the deputy director of FDD's Russia program. We're talking the war in Ukraine and recent uh, Ukrainian advances, as well as what's happening in the Donbass region. John, finally, we're going to get to the, the Bakhmut region. Tell us what's happening there, who's leading the fight, and um, what are Russians' prospects? I would say I would also say this is probably an area where you could describe as Russian Russia nominally being on the defensive. Uh, tell us what you're saying. Sure. So, so it's sort of similar in the sense that you know Russia's made some a fairly minor tactical advances, um, albeit at the cost of heavy casualties. Um, in, in this sector, uh, the Wagner Group, uh, you know, nominally private uh, military uh, company uh, led by a Russian oligarch uh, close to the Kremlin, um, is is really leading the charge here, along with you know perhaps some some soft and you know, other uh, Russian regulars. You know, also uh, the the local uh, DNR uh, uh, proxy forces, which you know Russia's now annexed. Um, but anyways, they're trying to uh, block Bakhmut from the south and northeast, um, and I think eventually they probably want to put a push to a town uh, west of Bakhmut and, and block it 
uh, lock the city from that direction as well. Theoretically, taking Bakhmut could open the door to uh, the, the last two major cities uh, in, in Donetsk Oblast. Um, it, it sort of opened a window to, to lead you know, up there uh, to the northwest. But, you know, uh, I just don't really see the prospects for that happening. Um, again, the Russians don't really seem to have the, the manpower or momentum to to turn these tactical successes into operational gains. And, you know, in, in fact, some of the tactical successes they've had over the past month um, have been uh, sort of reversed by Ukrainian counterattacks. So it, it's a hard slog on both sides. I'd say both sides are probably taking significant casualties. But on the whole, Ukraine is holding up. And, you know, if, if Ukraine ends up making significant gains in the Luhansk Oblast, um, in, in the sector we discussed earlier, you know, r- any Russian gains around Bakhmut, you know, could be nullified um, by by Ukraine. Yeah, we mentioned that on, on the last uh, podcast that you, you would join, that, that uh, Slovyansk and, and Kramatorsk, they seem to be out of reach for the Russians, given the losses in, in Kharkiv. You have to wonder what the Russians are thinking, grinding down their forces by, you know, trying to take, by trying to make some small tactical advances. I think it's sort of perhaps an emotional thing. It's, you know, it's kind of totemic um, uh, sector of, of the battlefield where, you know, you want to remain on the offensive, you know, taking uh, the rest of the Donetsk Oblast is, you know, a, a stated political goal. And also you might have a situation where, you know, like I said, Wagner is led by this oligarch Prigozhin, who, you know, is sort of trying to angle to increase, increase his own clout, you know, within Russia. So there might not be total unity of command in that sector. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We hear a lot about the Russian losses. Do, what, do we have indication that the Ukrainians are, are taking, are they taking losses on the same scale as the Russians? That's the one thing about this war that's really bothered me is that we get a lot of reporting on what the Russians are doing and aren't doing right and their casualties. And the Ukrainian, it seems like there's just an information blackout on what's happening in Ukraine. I believe it was was it General Milley, the chairman joint chief of staff? Is that correct? He said that the Ukrainians it pretty much indicated the Ukrainians took equal casualties as the Russians. And I thought that was significant, but who knows, right? I did as well. And assuming, I think what he said was, you know, uh, Russia around 100,000 and Ukraine, you know, about the same. So I'll give him, you know, maybe some wiggle room there. Maybe he was thinking 80 or something. I don't know. But whatever right. it was, it, it is significant. It, it did strike me as well because. Uh, if you think back earlier to you know the, the other the rare assessments we've got from Western leaders, uh, intelligence leaders about uh, about Russian casualties and Ukrainian casualties, it was always you know Ukraine significantly uh, smaller than Russia, smaller number. So if they are you know about even, that I guess that would mean Ukraine has, has taken a lot more over the past few months, perhaps as it's gone on the offensive. You know, offensive operations tend to require more troops and you can lose more as well. Uh, so I know that the fighting in Kherson, for example, has been uh, particularly tough and Ukraine has taken significant casualties there. Perhaps that's um, been what's driving the, the increase. Yeah. So the Russians have been targeting Ukrainian infrastructure in long range strikes. Uh, the bulk of the targets appear to be things like power plants, power substations, uh, some fuel depots I think I've seen. Uh, now we see many Ukrainian cities are, are experiencing power shortages and, and even blackouts. What's the Russian goals with these attacks? Are they? I mean, I, I think it's probably quite e- clear they want to make life difficult for the Ukrainians trying to erode their will. Do you think this is going to work? I mean, 
and is Russia able to keep up this type of strikes? They're, the lack of uh, efficacy of their air force has been quite puzzling to me. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, John? Sure. So uh, when the new commander, Sorovikin, uh, came in, that's basically when this um, when, when this campaign started. If you remember, uh, really the big first wave of strikes was right after uh, uh, Ukraine attacked the, the Crimean Bridge. But actually, I think they'd had it in, uh, in the works, the planes in the works, for at least a week or, or two before that. Basically, that yeah, like you said, they're trying to strike infrastructure, energy infrastructure primarily, um, you know, trying to give Ukraine a really a tough winter um, you know, by by you know, knocking out their electricity supplies. Uh, I think that the goal is probably, like you said, to to you know undermine Ukrainian will. If anything, I think it will do the opposite. Um, that being said, Ukraine does um, you know have face a, a pretty tough challenge with these strikes. Um, you know, Russia's uh, used these Iranian. Uh, loitering munitions, the Shahed, uh, 131 and 136s. Ukraine's actually had a good bit of success shooting them down, but but basically Russia, you know, just, you're able to mass them because they're so cheap. So you, if you throw 10, then, you know, some get shot down, well, three still hit a substation or something. You know, it can cause big problems, uh, especially if Iran is able to continue producing and providing them to Russia, which it seems um, to, to be able to do. You know, these these things are... Uh, made with com- commercially available components, they're they're not very expensive, like I said, probably in, on the order of you know tens of thousands of dollars, uh, as opposed to you know hundreds or or even millions um, for for an expensive missile. It does seem like you, uh, Russia will be able to keep up th- this campaign of strikes. And uh, you know, w- one thing this does for Ukraine, in addition to to taking out the you know the electricity in- infrastructure, it also causes them a big problem in that. You know, to, to shoot these things down, oftentimes you have to expend a, a surface-to-air missile that's you know much more expensive um, than than what you're shooting down. So, uh, and in particular with with the missiles for uh, Ukraine's Soviet-made uh, systems, the S-300 and the the, the Buk M1s, in particular the latter, um, I think that they probably face a shortage of of surface-to-air missiles, and if they run out of those, uh, that, that'll be a big problem. Um, I, I don't think uh, 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 the West, although we've provided you know some some additional uh, air defense systems, that I think will come. I'm not sure we'd be able to bridge that gap entirely, at least in, in the near to medium term. So um, that would be a big problem uh, for Ukraine. And you mentioned the Russian Air Force. I, I definitely agree. It doesn't seem to have been very effective um, in this war. That being said, if if Ukraine isn't able to contest. Uh, the skies, like it has been, you know, because it doesn't have these these long, medium range uh, uh, surface to air missile systems. Uh, you know th- that could allow the the Russian Air Force to to you know operate a bit more freely. They wouldn't have to to fly as low, which you know wouldn't make them uh, as vulnerable to man pads. And so you know they, they could see them unleashed, uh, you know, to some extent. To exactly what extent, I'm, I'm not sure. You know whether they'd actually be able to. Conduct some sort of strategic, you know, air campaign targeting bridges or whatever, or if it'd be more limited to, uh, you know, perhaps a bit more uh, effective uh, close air support. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but if Ukraine does not get more air defenses to bridge the gap, I, I think that will be a big problem. You hit on it, John. I think this is one of the long-term goals with this, with these attacks on the civilian infrastructure. It puts a strain on Ukrainian air defense systems. And what we've seen, right, the, the Israelis, the, the Ukrainians have been pressing the Israelis to provide air defense systems and, and other systems. The Israelis are saying, 
we don't have enough for ourselves and other countries which have skimped on their their national defense for for decades uh, particularly nato countries that are supporting ukraine you know they have enough for themselves they don't have an excess of this even the us is running into these sort of problems so i think this is something that that bears looking at in the future the Russians can, you know, I think uh, one thing if I were the Russians, I'd want to do, I'd want to be, be able to, to hunt and target those HIMAR uh, systems that have really caused problems for the Russians. As you mentioned, they're using them to target weapons depots, command and control centers, long-range bridges. And as you mentioned earlier, as the Russians press forward and are now in the bank, the the uh, West Bank of the Dnepro, they have those HIMARS can be moved a little further forward to con- to hit in further in the Russian rear area. If I'm the if I'm the Russians, I want to I want to degrade Ukrainian air defense systems enough that I could get my air force back into the fight, as well as have the advantage. And by the way, hitting the power systems, it's not just civilian targets to to erode the morale. The Ukrainian military needs power. They need fuel. They need other, you know, these things that the Russians are targeting. So there's also an impact there. Uh, but let's let's start looking ahead. Um, what are, where do we see things going? We mentioned a little bit about the winter earlier, right? The winter is coming. The Russian military uh, is really looks like they're digging in. The Ukrainians may be looking in, in some fronts to continue their offensive. It would make if they have the capabilities of doing it. What do you see? What do you see looking ahead where both Russia and Ukraine, where are they going with this war? Sure. So I think there's a pretty wide expectation, uh, definitely in the West, um, that we'll kind of see a lull in fighting in Ukraine. I think that's probably true to an extent um, for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier. That being said, I think if we're expecting this to sort of be a pause, that's probably misguided. Um, the, the Ukrainian uh, Zeluzhny, the, the top general, uh, basically said as much yesterday. Um, you know, so I think this will remain a high-intensity fight. Um, Ukraine will continue to try to you know, exploit advantages in morale, in range, precision, intelligence, their interior lines, um, and, and, you know, training will, I think, increasingly be um, in Ukraine's favor as Russia has to rely more and more on, on relatively untrained troops. Well, I think Ukrainian mobilized forces are, are probably getting better training um, in, in part thanks to, to uh, Western training programs, which are um, continuing to ramp up. Real quick, John, how, how many troops are being trained monthly? When the UK first launched their program, the goal was like ten thousand over three months. I think they've they've since expanded it, and they're also um, you know in addition to sort of like just basic training, I think they're doing a little bit more uh, like training of junior commanders, some, a little bit more uh, unit training, and then the, the EU recently launched a new program. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they'll end up with capacity, um, but I think bottom line is you know these Ukrainian uh, uh, mobilized forces. Are getting uh, probably significantly better training than, than what they're getting in Russia. And what is the Russian goals over the winter? What do you what do you think? What do you see happening? Sure. So I think uh, much like Ukraine, Russia needs to uh, uh, generate additional forces. They're going to do that through mobilization. Uh, you know, they'll be taking some more equipment out of storage, trying to you know procure more um, arms for Iran, probably North Korea as well. So I, th- I think Russia wants to. Uh, be able to emerge from the winter with sort of a, a reconstituted force and then win back the strategic initiative while Ukraine, you know, of course, wants to prevent uh, Russia from sort of regaining its the initiative and its cohesion and morale and, you know, wants to continue to, to, rep- to press its initiative. 
know, like I said, you know, force generation will be a priority for both sides. Ukraine obviously needs uh, a continued uh, flows of Western equipment. We mentioned um, air defense, um, but you know, protected mobility, armored vehicles, you know, tanks, etc. Uh, you know, th- this is uh, these things are definitely important as well. In addition to the continued uh, flows of, of you know artillery and munitions and what have you, is is it fair to say that Ukraine is becoming increasingly dependent on Western weapon systems as it depletes its stockpiles of its Soviets? Oh, oh, certainly. I mean, so there there was actually a, a heartening report um, the other day that, that Ukraine um, is going to um, uh, organize some some production of Soviet made. Um, so our Soviet standard artillery shells. You know that being said, I, I couldn't, I couldn't see them having, uh, being able to organize production that quickly of of, you know, uh, sufficient capacity to sustain what they what they need, uh, especially if they're going to move toward you know some sort of parity in artillery fires. So I, yeah, I, I, they'll definitely stay dependent on the West, and you know it's not just artillery; it's it's other things as well. Yeah, I think this is one of the 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 key vulnerabilities of the Ukrainians. They're supply chain they're using multiple weapons they seem to be handling it very well at the moment but one of one of the things and i know we discussed this before is i worry about weakening uh western resolve um because i think one of the things we see here in this fight right is that russia is not a conventional military threat to western europe or or even eastern europe perhaps the baltics right given the proximity of the border and then that invokes Article 5 with NATO, et cetera. I don't think the Russians want to go there. So I could see at some point, and, and also the the dearth of equipment that the Western countries have, they're being, they're increasingly uh, coming up short on what they can supply. The U.S. has really become the main supplier with the United Kingdom second. So this is just one that I always just keep my eye on. It's it's one of the biggest concerns, weakening support. How does U- Ukraine manage its uh, it's, uh, the flow of the weapons coming in and what happens if there's, you know, as we come up to the, to the potential hard winter in, in Western and Eastern Europe, can this weaken resolves? Does this cause a push for a negotiated settlement? I realize these are probably a lot bigger issues than the, um, than what's happening in the, you know, in the military, on the battlefield here, which is the focus of our talk. But it does bleed down into Ukraine's capabilities if there is a, if a weakening there. Do you have any thoughts on that going, well, at this point? You get the nail on the head in, in that um, you know, Western support really is the, the center of gravity for Ukraine. Um, I, I think Putin probably knows that, or he should know that, um, you know, if Ukraine keeps getting the same level of, of, of Western support, I, I don't really see the tides turning for Russia. So. You know, Putin really has to do something about that, or or he has to bet that it's going to dry up, whether because you know the supplies just run out, or because or if the will, um, uh, the, the determination on the West part sort of uh, degrades over time. So I think you know he's done a, a number of things to try to, to try to um, you know deter further Western support, uh, whether you know energy blackmail, uh, you know nuclear threats, what have you. Um, you know, so far it hasn't worked. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will continue not to work. Um, but you know, as the months go ahead and as the war drags on, perhaps you know, late into 2023, and we could be looking at potentially you know winter 2023, a year from now. Um, you know, who knows? It, it's really hard to to predict the market. That's yeah, that's a difficult projection yeah. point. I mean, right now we're seeing 10, per, 10 plus percent and double digit yeah. inflation 
in Germany, uh, they're talking about blackouts and, you know, that has a real impact on democratic countries and, and their will, yeah. right? You know, we're not, it, it's, you know, theoretically or however you want to put this, it's not really our fight in, in the sense, or at least that's the common person's, you know, it, once their power starts going out, once they're paying a lot of money, they're going, well, maybe we need to look, uh, look for a different solution. That's what I worry about, but I think you're right. So far, it hasn't had that impact. This winter is going to be a real test. But um, let's uh, let's keep looking at how is Russian force mobilization, uh, how is that projecting going forward? Is it going to work for the Russians? What are they doing? What um, what are the pros? What are the cons here? I would just add on the last topic that ultimately it'll it'll be up to the U.S. So you know, and probably increasingly so, at least in terms of military support. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that Poland is, it seems to be more than willing uh, partner and the Baltics, you know, the, the I think that gives the avenue through. Like, I could see, you you know, what happens if Germany just throws its hands up in the air? Well, it doesn't have a border with Ukraine, so we could always use Poland as a conduit to get U.S. military aid. But then this puts additional pressure, right? There's a political issue there. Again, I realize we're exceeding our scope, but if, if a lot of Western Europe says, not our fight, we want a negotiated settlement, then the U.S. has to up the cost. Um, you know, American citizens start questioning, well, if this is such a threat to democracy in Europe, why aren't the Europeans concerned about this? So these these type of issues kind of snowball over time. Those are my concerns. Um, I hope that I'm, you know, certainly uh, that I'm, uh, you know, looking at the worst case scenario there and that it's not it won't it won't play out that way. Let's just say. But, you know, I always prepare for the worst. Yeah, definitely great. Something we have to keep an eye on. And obviously, the Ukrainians do watch it very closely as well. Yes, yes, they do. So let's get back to Russian mobilization going forward. Yeah. Overall, I'd say it's been a bit of a hot mess. I'm sure you know the, the listeners have, have seen this on social media and elsewhere. Russia mobilization has really overwhelmed their capacity uh, to, you know, take in, accommodate, equip, and train up uh, so many forces. As I said in previous previous podcasts, you know, the Russian army is not the Soviet one. It's not really built to, to quickly intake and, and effectively deploy a, just a vast number of troops like this. So you know, the, the claim number is 300,000. Um, you know, it's hard to say exactly whether the number is accurate, but it is certainly a lot. Um, it, I think it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, um, if not 300. So, you know, it, it Russia, I think, even uh, if they had their entire military back in in uh, back in Russia, and they had all their you know junior officers available to to you know, train and lead these folks, which right now is a big problem. I think they even then they'd have some some capacity issues. And actually, they had to uh, postpone by a month their their planned uh, autumn conscription cycle. So in Russia, you, you you hold two conscription cycles a year, spring and, and fall. The, the fall one was supposed to start October one. They de- they delayed it by a month, basically saying, you know, we don't want to uh, stretch our capacity even even further. So, you might have seen on social media and, th- and elsewhere, uh, you know, videos of, of folks with you know without body armor or you know things like that. Um, I'd say that uh, that the issues of provision and probably training as as well have varied considerably by region. So. I wouldn't assume that the issues you see online are really, um, you know, across the board. It probably varies by, you know, how wealthy the region is, because a lot of times the um, the MOD stocks, uh, they've basically said, hey, it's on the regional government to procure sleeping bags or, you know, medical uh, supplies or whatever. Um, and so, you know, the, the poor regions suffer 
and uh, along with them, the, the mobilized troops from there, and then the more wealthy regions, uh, you know, do a bit better. Assuming that corruption isn't playing a, a key a key role in preventing some of that uh, gear, gear to getting to the Russian troops too. I think definitely corruption. We can say this: corruption probably did p- play a role in depleting some of the stocks to begin with. There was actually a, yep. a Duma member who asked something along the lines of, "You know, where did the the 1.5 million um, uniforms go? You know, so like why why are we having a shortage of uniforms? Why are we getting?" You know, uh, you know, local women in, in these you know regions to sew uniforms by hand uh, or on their sewing machines or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think cor- corruption is is probably an issue, and we've actually seen some some prosecutions um, come out for for some folks who are responsible for this sort of thing. So um, I, I suspect that that these problems that might have been swept under the rug are now getting um, you know pulled back out from under the rug. Okay, John, I think we covered everything we can uh, in this episode. Of- uh, discussing the Russia-Ukraine war. You got anything else to add quickly? I would just say, you know, in the months ahead, um, I wouldn't count out or discount the, the effect of mobilization. We're going to have to see, um, you know, you know uh, so the Russians have kept the majority of their mobilized forces back in Russia and still undergoing training. At least, you know, that's what they say. Um, and so theoretically, these troops could get more and better training. Whether that's actually going to happen, you know, it remains to be seen. But, you know, I suspect they will try to, you know, maybe reconstitute some units and, and you know, create reserves. Um, and so if they are successful, that, that could have a significant impact on the war. Um, as I said earlier, you know, I don't see it uh, really turning into a war winner for Russia, but it could you know, enable, to, enable them to sustain it and, and really affect, you know, how much territory uh, Ukraine is able to take. So uh, we're going to have to watch the quality of training that these forces are getting. Um, you know, that, that's something I do daily. Um, and I think we'll, we'll probably see the effect on the battlefield. Yeah, I think this is the key point, the key moment for the for the Russians here. If they if they're unable to mobilize and train the forces this winter, and they they should have time to do this, and then get them deployed, and at the very least hold hold the ground. I think you're you're pretty much looking at the at the end of the. the I think the Russians will be able to hold some territory for this. But its ability to retake and achieve its goals of taking the Donbass and and possibly regaining lost areas in Kherson, I think we I think that's out the window. And so the Russians are at a, at a key point with this mobilization. John, thank you very much for joining uh, us today on Generation Jihad. Just a reminder uh, for our listeners, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.